Good afternoon, judge, panelists, friends. It's good to see all of you. I should say that the views presented today are not necessarily endorsed by the Federalist Society, especially my own. Those of you who have heard me before know why that policy is so important. I'm Ken Marcus. I chair the executive committee of this practice group, the Civil Rights Practice Group, also known as the uh, oldest uh, collective self-cancellation society in, uh, in American law. You can all wave to the camera over there. If you're new or not even not so new, please take a moment to take a look at the person to your right. Now take a look at the person to your left. These are the people who will testify against you <laughs> at the Senate Judiciary Committee. They have seen you here in the shadowy cabal. They are your Whitaker Chambers. It is too late to change seats, but be very careful what you say to them. I'm gonna be honest with you, which is difficult for former government officials, and I'm gonna say that it has not been easy for these 12 months, and especially now, to put together events for you, the Civil Rights Practice Group, because there's nothing interesting that has happened in civil rights this year. There was a moment when people were concerned that under the Biden administration, we would lose due process under Title IX. Then people said, well, you know what? There's no way we're gonna lose due process under Title IX under a president against whom there have been so many allegations of sexual misconduct by so many women without any basis in fact. The Federalist Society does not endorse any of the statements that are made today. There were also concerns earlier in the year that in the name of equality or equal protection, we would lose certain of our basic rights. We have been reassured lately that the Biden administration has jettisoned uh, equal protection altogether. So no fear for that. Instead, they have embraced its antonym known as equity. There were then concerns when every agency in the federal government adopted something called an equity action plan. Many were concerned that this would lead to racial preferences until these plans were read and it was determined that they were entirely incoherent. This was the good news. At a local level, things have been bleak. We have seen school boards infiltrated by terrorists working under the acronym PTA. <laughs> now I'm gonna be real with you and say that there was at this convention one speaker who withdrew based on the perception that the Federalist Society was involved in blocking Merrick Garland from being a justice of the Supreme Court, only to have him cause more mischief in his current job as Attorney General. The Federalist Society does not endorse any of the views expressed today. At a state level, there was alarm at bills introduced by more than half of our states to eliminate critical race theory. The concern was that mandated public, state-mandated public education would one day become mandated by the state. The one area that we're going to focus on that, depending on your perspective, is either the one bright spot or the one not so bright spot, is the judiciary and, in particular, affirmative action in the courts. This is an area in which many of us have been waiting for this presentation. I'm glad to say you will have a real moderator 
momentarily who will help you to forget everything that you heard uh, during this introductory remark. Uh, Judge Kevin C. Newsom is a graduate of the Harvard Law School. He clerked for Judge O'Scanlan and then for Justice David Souter. He served with distinction as Solicitor General of the state of Alabama. He now serves as judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit. Please join me in welcoming Judge Newsom. Thank you so much. I'm uh, thrilled to be here, um, and we're going to have a good time this afternoon. Uh, before we do, I'd like, if I may, just to begin on a serious note uh, today, if you had forgotten, is Veterans Day. Um, and uh, this organization, of course, is billed as a collection of conservative and libertarian lawyers, judges, and academics. We're very happy to have our progressive friends with us on stage. Um, but in the US military, which as far as I'm concerned is the greatest uh, freedom insuring entity in the history of the world, there are no R's and D's, there are no reds and blues, there are no liberals and conservatives, there are just patriots. And so I would like um, for us all simply to give a round of applause to anyone in the room who might have been a veteran. Thank you. Okay, so um, my job is to introduce the topic and our speakers and then keep the conversation going, which I suspect will not be too difficult to do. Uh, in case you hadn't heard or had forgotten, uh, on Halloween Day, two cases were argued in the U.S. Supreme Court, one from Harvard, one from the University of North Carolina, uh, presenting the question, in essence, whether, how, to what extent uh, race can be considered as a factor in admissions. And if that seems familiar to you, it's because it should. It's something of a replay. Uh, the court will consider whether to overrule a decision it uh, announced, handed down 19 years ago, uh, Grutter versus Bollinger, um, in which the court there held that the Equal Protection Clause permitted um, at least some consideration of race in university admissions. Uh, again, we have two cases, uh, one from Harvard, one from the University of North Carolina. Uh, they present, in essence, the same question, and we'll talk about whether it should be precisely the same question, but the, roughly the same question um, under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, which for the uninitiated says as follows, no state shall, dot, 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 deny to any person, dot, 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 the equal protection of the laws. And then there's Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which says that no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, dot, 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 be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. Uh, to discuss the Harvard and North Carolina cases today, uh, the issues presented in those cases, the likely results, and next steps, we have assembled an all-star panel. And I'm going to introduce them briefly to you in the order in which you will hear from them. Uh, first, we have Mike Carvin, who is a partner at Jones Day, is one of the country's, by all accounts, leading trial and appellate litigators, an 11-time oral advocate in the U.S. Supreme Court, and most importantly to me, a one-time mooter of yours truly for an argument <laughs> that I had in the Supreme Court, which was terrifically helpful to me. Um, professor Eric Siegel is a professor of law at Georgia State in Atlanta. Um, he is a prolific scholar and author, both in law reviews and in the popular press. He's also the author of a progressive critique of originalism called Originalism as Faith. We're glad to have him here. And Gail Harriet, uh, who's a professor of law at the University of San Diego and a member of the US Commission on Civil Rights, 
uh, teaches a range of subjects and has a range of expertise from which we will all benefit today. So uh, with that, why don't we give our entire panel a warm welcome. And I'm now gonna hand it to Mike, who will give a brief presentation uh, followed by Eric, then Gail, then we're giving Eric a little bit of bonus time at the end, and then we'll begin to mix it up with some questions. So Mike, take it away. Thanks. Yeah, I thought I'd begin by just trying to put in perspective the evolution of this affirmative action argument. One good thing about being old, I've been arguing this since the early 1980s when I was at the Reagan Civil Rights Division. It's been very interesting to me how it's changed. Back then, the only argument in favor of racial preferences was a remedial. We have to correct ongoing barriers, discriminatory barriers. It's a temporary thing. Once we eliminate the barriers, then we can transition to a race-neutral regime. Obviously, nobody's making those arguments anymore in favor of affirmative action. It's been 68 years since Brown, 58 years since the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Nobody can credibly argue that Harvard or UNC is doing anything to disfavor uh, minorities. So then they've shifted the argument, which first appeared in this case I was involved with called Wygant, where, look, it's a good thing, just integration is a good thing in and of itself. We want to increase the number of minorities, um, you know, provide role models, harmony, all of that. And the Supreme Court, I thought, had definitively rejected that argument, saying, well, that's just racial balancing for its own sake, and it would be a, a theory that would be timeless in its reach into the future. Then all of a sudden, all they did was change the argument they made in Wygant and gave it a new label called diversity, and all of a sudden, everybody was kowtowing, oh, diversity, that's a wonderful thing. And <clears throat> I just want to point out the major threshold shift in this argument, how dangerous it is inherently. When you were talking about remedial race use, uh, Harry Blackman was saying, you know, you get, use race to get beyond racism. But now you're talking about injecting race into a circumstance where it would never be used to disadvantage minorities. So you've gone from a race-neutral regime to one that necessarily judges individuals on the basis of their skin color. And that's a, a very dangerous thing. And um, uh, and the two points I want to make about the diversity is to cut through sort of the semantic gamesmanship. In the first place, it's obviously a numbers-based goal or quota regime. Uh, it has to be, right? Harvard and UNC are going to have Latinos and blacks under a race-neutral system. So the argument has to be that increasing the number of blacks or Latinos to some critical mass number is the compelling government interest. Going from, say, 6% blacks to 12% blacks is the educational benefit uh, we're talking about. So it has to be go designed to get to the 12%. And the striking thing is there's not a scintilla of evidence in any of these cases that that 6% increase is going to affect educational quality for minorities, non-minorities, or anybody else. It's, uh, so it's, it's a completely unsupported theory in terms of your compelling uh, government interest. And this is hardly surprising to me, right? I mean, I think that uh, greater numbers achieved through preferences really undoes all the benefits of diversity, right? It legitimizes racism in a number of ways. First of all, it undoes our moral consensus that evolved in the 1960s, that it is quite literally wrong and immoral to judge somebody by the color of their skin rather than the content of the character. 
Now that's morphed into, well, just depends on whose ox is gored. It's perfectly fine to, disagree, uh, to discriminate against an Asian uh, because after all, Asians have committed the cardinal sin in American society. They've worked hard, played by the rules, and notwithstanding century of discrimination, have succeeded. So we really need a regime where Korematsu's grandson is excluded from a school in California so that LeBron James' son can be uh, included. <laughs> and obviously, I, this is just completely divorced from any notion of equal treatment or anything that, that makes any sense. The other thing is, it obviously stigmatizes the so-called beneficiaries of these regimes. You've given every employer, every graduate school an object a basis, an empirical basis for assuming that minorities are objectively less qualified than their non-minority counterparts. And that gives them a basis for uh, uh, treating them worse, treating them differently. I call this the George W. Bush phenomenon, right? I mean, George W. Bush went to Yale as an undergraduate, got a degree, went to Harvard Business School, got a degree. If he was a son of a pipe fitter, everyone would say, this guy is a genius. But I, you probably recall that probably wasn't the consensus view of George W. Bush. Uh, precisely because everybody thought, well, he's got a preference getting in you know, through his father's connections and legacies. And we put that brand on every minority graduate of these institutions. Uh, so it, it's got to be wrong. The other point is the notion of diversity inherently revolves around the fact that people of similar colors or ethnicities think the same, that there's some Latino view of the algebra that we need to have in, in, injected into our, uh, our dialogue because, you know, they all sort of think the same, which is, again, precisely the kind of stigmatic harm that the court in Shaw said uh, we can't allow. But you don't have to take my word for it, right? The universities themselves say the reason we need to increase minority representation is because the minorities on our campuses feel isolated and segregated and not part of the gang. Well, you've been doing this for 50 years. And if that's the state of your campus today, then obviously this thing is not working. And the definition of insanity, of course, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting uh, a different result. Um, so in all events, um, I. All of this doesn't make a lot of sense, and all of this is quite perpetual, right? How are you supposed to know uh, when you've achieved uh, the goals of diversity? Obviously, it's only when you get to the 12% uh, through uh, race-neutral means, which means we'll end the program when we have proportional representation among all groups, which has never been achieved in the history of man and will never happen. So we are stuck with this regime forever. Because remember, the goal is the 12%. And we've got to get to that before we can stop discriminating to get to the 12%. My final point on this will be the, the means by which they achieve this diversity. You've all seen the, the ads for Harvard and UNC. And, well, it's just a tiny little preference. It's just a tiebreaker at the end of a holistic uh, review. By the way, I, I'll digress. I, I'm a strong proponent of the First Amendment, but I would heartily endorse any law, federal law, that prohibits the use of the word holistic in any environment. <laughs> uh, I, I just can't hear it anymore. In any event, 
at the end of this holistic examination where we just give, you know, it's like playing volleyball in high school. They're just a tiny little preference. That's what they say. Simultaneously, they say, if you end this tiny little thumb on the scale, we'll have complete resegregation. There won't be any minorities on campus. And so obviously, we'll have this dramatic fall off of minority participation. Well, whatever you think, uh, those both can't be true. It's obviously got to be a very substantial preference. And the facts in Harvard and UNC are truly stunning about how big a preference this is. I'm sure you've seen it that a black in the bottom third, or based on grades and uh, test scores, has the same chance of admission to Harvard as an Asian in the top 10%. UNC is roughly the same. Harvard itself admitted that 45% of the blacks and Latinos in their school are there uh, that race was the determinative characteristic. So it's a, uh, a rigid race-based regime which uh, is based on extraordinarily strong preference. So it is precisely like the program that was struck down in Baki and bears no relationship to the fantasy hypothesized by Justice Powell about what the Harvard plan did. So we'll leave to, uh, I think, I'll get into more detail later, but I don't think there's any question that this Supreme Court is going to allow this to happen. Uh, this racial spoil system has greatly exacerbated racial tensions uh, throughout the country. It's uh, inherently unfair. It's opposed by overwhelming majorities of, of the country, including majorities of uh, blacks and Latinos. So I think the, the Supreme Court's gonna say, uh, we've had enough of this. It was, we can't do this 68 years after Brown. We're gonna to have to return to a system. We're actually gonna assess individuals as individuals rather than indistinguishable components of a racial group. And that will be a, a very happy day in the United States. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mike. Um, Eric. A rebuttal of sorts, perhaps? Um, there will be a rebuttal coming, I promise. Um, thank you for having me here. I feel like a guest in somebody else's house. And I appreciate that, although I also want to say that I have a lot of good friends and connections in this room. Uh, Justice Namius of the Georgia Supreme Court previously is sitting there, and Justice Namius and I have had numerous public debates, all of which I've learned a lot from and enjoyed. Uh, last time Judge Newsom and I got together, we had a panel on whether constitutional law is law. That's up my alley. I said, no, it's not. Um, and I'm going to show in the affirmative action context in a minute that it's not. Um, I'm a frequent uh, participant in Federalist Society events. Three years in a row, I've done this national event for the Students' Federalist Society with Ilan Werman, one of our brightest and most promising young scholars. I enjoy that event. Judge Van Dyke and I are friends. Um, and sitting next to, next to Justice Namius is a person I'm sure all of you know named John Malcolm, who is a, a huge figure over at the Heritage Society. And um, John and I, it turns out, clerk for the same judges and exactly the same judges. Um, and in fact, John followed me after my first two years clerking in Northern District of Georgia, and I recommended to my judge that he hire John. And the next year I went to the Court of Appeals and clerked for Judge Henderson there, and I said to him, you should hire this guy Malcolm, he's really smart, and he did. Um, so I have, I feel like I'm a guest, but maybe you know, not, not so much a guest as, as other progressives maybe you've had here. That being said, I've learned the art of the pause. <laughs> that being said, I can't get on to the topic of hand. It is beyond my human nature, and those of you, that a lot of you know me, know it's beyond my human nature. 
not to make a couple comments about Judge Pryor's opening address. And I will then, I promise, on my third point, responding to Judge Pryor's opening address, I will lead right into affirmative action. I don't think it is appropriate for a sitting, uh, by the way, I'm very proud to have clerked for the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and I'm so ancient that when I clerked there, Judge Tuttle and Judge Johnson and the, the heroes of the old Fifth Circuit were still senior judges, and I knew all of them. And I'm, some of the proudest relationships of my life are with those judges. I don't think it is fair for the Chief Judge of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals to call out by name journalists and law professors who are doing nothing but their job. I am a frequent contributor to Slate. It is one thing to criticize Slate or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. It is quite another thing to, to by name identify reporters and law professors. Rick, whatever you think of Rick Hasen, he is the leading electoral expert in the United States. And he just is, um, election law expert. And to call out these people by name, I think is inappropriate and dangerous. And I, I wish Judge Pryor hadn't done that. The second point I wanna make about this I've written a lot about this. Judge Pryor himself brought up the issue of law clerks. I would love to have a public discussion. We live very close to each other. He's in Atlanta all the time, two blocks from my law school. Um, I would love to have a public discussion, a civil public discussion sometime with Judge Pryor about law clerk hiring policies. Anytime, anywhere, any place, and I guarantee you it will be covered by the national media, and I hope we get to do that someday. Third, and finally, I loved his comments about the 1982 Federalist Society and, and, and Professor um, Calabresi and Judge Bork and Justice Scalia back then. I love that because, and this is the truth, uh, my first book um, was called Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges. And the 1982 Federalist Society, I would, have been the, I would have been the keynote speaker at the 1983 Federalist Society Convention if my book had been written back then. Because back then, the Federalist Society was, in fact, devoted to the idea that absent clear and convincing evidence of original intent, we call it original meaning now, I wrote a whole book about that, but back then the idea was, before a plaintiff gets to have a law struck down, judges must be presented with clear and convincing evidence that the original intent of the drafters of the Constitution or the ratifiers or the voters um, made that law unconstitutional. I spent my last 30 years of my career defending that position. Um, I believe in clear error judicial review. Chris Green, another friend of mine who's here someplace, Chris comes very close to my view. Um, John McGinnis, who was here yesterday, has written about the duty of clarity. I don't know exactly what John means by that, but what it means is a some burden of proof on plaintiffs to come forward with evidence of constitutional error. So I agree that judges should stand down. Um, I don't think they should stand up as comedians at these kind of events necessarily, but I do think they should, unless they're good at it, but I do think they should stand down. And speaking of standing down, I will now get to affirmative action. Thank you for that indulgence. I was nervous about doing that, but I simply couldn't let it go without passing, and I'm sorry. Okay, affirmative action. I was told last year by your Supreme Court, by four of the, just, four of the justices who were here last night, um, at, the, at your gala. So you guys have won, by the way. It's nice to be classy winners, congratulations. Um, they told me in the Bruin case and in the Dobbs case that we don't do the things Michael was talking about. I might actually agree with a lot of what Michael was saying. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm 5248 on affirmative action. I've been on admissions committees and recruitment committees for 32 years in a law school that, that sits two blocks from the heart of Atlanta Motel. That in my lifetime, and I'm old, I'm not ancient, I hope, but I'm old. In my lifetime, the heart of Atlanta Motel went to the Supreme Court and said, no blacks here, we don't want them. 
two blocks from my public law school. So I'm not sure about the policy considerations. We can debate those later maybe, but we really shouldn't be debating policy considerations because it's all about text, tradition, history, and precedent. It's your judges who said that, not my judges. Your judges said that. And they said it twice and they said it strongly. And by the way, I've been saying it for 30 years, but leaving that aside, what Michael was talking about was the policy pros and cons of affirmative action. I'm not gonna do that right now. Let's talk about text, tradition, history, and precedent in about the five minutes I have left. Text, it's not there. The word colorblindness doesn't appear. The word race doesn't appear in the Equal Protection Clause or the Privileges or Immunities Clause. So any idea that text leads to colorblindness is an extrapolation. It is living constitutionalism. It is judges making things up. It's not in the text. Let's talk about tradition. This country has never been colorblind, not one second. We went from slavery to black codes to segregation to Richard Nixon putting pressure on Michigan, Yale, Harvard, I believe Stanford, I'm not positive about that, to use affirmative action. There's no tradition of colorblindness in this country. I will not tolerate an argument to the contrary. It doesn't exist. Now, you might say, well, but 10 states have outlawed affirmative action. Under the tradition analysis used by Justices Thomas and Scalia, 10 states in the post-1980 world is not a tradition. Slavery, segregation, black codes, segregation, affirmative action. Tradition gets you nowhere. Precedent, if you want to invalidate affirmative action under the law as opposed to the policy considerations, which Bruin says we can't talk about. Um, third, precedent. Well, you know the answer to that. 1978, nope, no, color, no colorblindness. 19, uh, 2003, no colorblindness. 2016, no colorblindness. To get there, you have to reverse, yet again, 50 more years of precedent. Egregiously wrong, maybe. Um, I, and, and while I'm on the subject, the only reason diversity is the only rationale that progressives are allowed to use to defend affirmative action is because the Supreme Court told us that. We would much rather put forward a remedial rationale and talk about the institutional racism that still exists in America. But we're not allowed to do that because the Supreme Court said diversity only. Which finally leads me to history. And I want to tell you I did a lot of research for this. General Mises' brief is the brief that was relied upon by the plaintiffs and is the most comprehensive brief of all the amici briefs, amicus briefs here talking about history. If you take General Mises' brief, which relies on two law review articles by two friends of mine, one by Michael McConnell, one by Michael Rappaport, that's the whole brief, two articles. If you take that brief and you put it up against the historian's brief, no fair reading of the historical materials leads to the idea that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment precludes some racial criteria in university admissions. The authority cite, first of all, McConnell's article on Brown being originalist has nothing to do with affirmative action. He doesn't talk about it in that article. Whatever, I'm a friend of Michael's, whatever he feels about affirmative action today, it's not in the article that um, General Meese used to support his historical arguments. That article is irrelevant to our issue. On the other hand, Michael Rappaport's article is directly on point. But what Michael said, and I want to quote him um, directly on this because it's really important to understand. What Michael said there is um, uh, the people who think that the original meaning supports affirmative action think they're clearly right and they're not clearly right. That's not the issue. The issue is not whether those of us who think affirmative action is constitutional um, can defend it as being allowed by the 14th Amendment. It is those who say it is unconstitutional to say that the original meaning precludes it. And it doesn't. And if you look at the briefs you will, and those two articles, what you will see is reliance on the losers of history. Andrew Johnson vetoed the 1866 Act, Civil Rights Act, on the grounds, partly, 
that it gave special treatments to blacks. They didn't call them blacks, of course. But 1866, he vetoed it. And two-thirds of both Congresses overrode it and said, we don't care. It's not a bad thing. We have no other choice. Now, that doesn't support affirmative action necessarily. I concede that point because, of course, the newly freed enslaved people were coming out, and we needed various ways to get them to some, you know, towards equality. But it doesn't support no affirmative action. And I would like to think what Stephen Calabresi believed in 1982, what Antonin Scalia said many, many times, what I thought the Federalist Society used to stand for um, was it is the plaintiff's burden to show by clear and convincing evidence that a law is unconstitutional. And I am telling you, I urge you to read General Mises' brief, read how he uses those two and only those two articles, and then read the actual historian's brief. And you will come away with the idea that no fair reading of the historical material suggests that judges should strike down affirmative action unless you are persuaded by the policy arguments against affirmative action. And I think there are many of those, and we can debate them. I'm 5149, 5248 in favor of affirmative action, I could probably be convinced. We're not allowed to do that. Your judges said that. They said it in Dobbs and they said it in Bruin. So I hope for the remainder of this conversation at least, because we are here to talk about the constitutionality of affirmative action and we can talk about Title VI. I do not fancy myself a statutory interpretation expert. I dabble, <laughs> but I'm not an expert. Um, I'll try to respond if that comes up. But as to the constitutional law of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment, I'm here to tell you, it does not preclude the kind of race-based criteria that has led, hold your breaths now, to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill being 8% black in a state that is 21% black. It has led to the horrible situation that every major university in this country is well over 50% white, um, and so on and so forth. So if we're gonna talk about policy consequences, we should talk about them honestly, um, but I don't think that's the subject for today because the four Supreme Court justices who had dinner with you guys last night, plus two others, told us, one other, excuse me, told us in two other cases that policy is not the job of judges. Well, if policy is not the job of judges, then affirmative action stands. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. And uh, Gail? I think I'm gonna stand up. Oh, please. Okay, in the eight to 10 minutes that I have, I wanna quickly make two points that relate directly to the case and then go on and spend a little bit more time on what should happen after the Supreme Court makes this decision. Um, so first point, um, all the talk about the constitutional uh, aspects of this, um, very unnecessary. Title VI passed as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 very explicitly uh, bans race discrimination by federally funded um, recipients. Uh, the text is crystal clear. The only argument to the contrary traces back to the Bakke decision in 1978 uh, when five justices, four of whom were really dissenting from the ultimate holding in that case, um, stated in dictum that Title VI might say no race discrimination, uh, but what it really means um, is no unconstitutional uh, race discrimination. And by unconstitutional race discrimination, what it really means 
means um, is that five justices of the Supreme Court get to do what they think is best. Um, at the time, uh, they pointed to a couple of scattered statements in the legislative history to the effect that all Title VI does is apply the Constitution to private entities that receive uh, federal funding. Uh, well, of course they said that. Uh, members of Congress at the time thought that Title VI was redundant with regard to public entities because they thought the United States Constitution's 14th Amendment already um, outlawed race discrimination. Um, so, so of course they, they, they were to say that. Uh, they would, I think, be shocked to find that somehow this argument has been bootstrapped into Title VI, which bans race discrimination, period, um, somehow doesn't quite do that. Uh, I don't have time to, to talk uh, greatly about Justice Gorsuch's question about Title VI during the oral arguments uh, in which he uh, relates his majority decision in the Bostock case uh, to the present case. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit uh, when we get to the question and answer. Uh, second point I wanted to make, there was a lot of talk during that five hour oral argument um, about the notion that this is just one factor among many. Uh, I'm with Mike here about that. The, the, the very amusing part of it um, is this notion of it's a teeny weeny thing, but nevertheless the sky will fall um, if we don't um, allow colleges and universities to continue it. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But what I want to add to what Mike said is that always when you're given an argument like this, flip it in your mind. What would happen if, if they had argued um, instead, we give preferential treatment to white people in our admissions, uh, but don't worry, it's only a teeny weeny weeny factor. Uh, the American people would rightly have a fit at that. Um, it doesn't matter whether it is a teeny weeny factor or a big factor. Uh, moreover, the notion that, that uh, it's no big deal because it's, it's one among many factors, you know, that's just silly. Uh, that is always the case in any sort of decision. There are always multiple criteria. Uh, in order to be admitted to, to, to colleges and universities selective, you have to be able to show you know, you graduated from high school, uh, you read and write in the English language, and a host of other things. The point has always been that race shouldn't be a factor at all, uh, not it shouldn't be the only thing that's considered. So that allows me to get to my third point, which was the reason that I came all the way across the country to talk to you, and that is I want to talk a little bit about what happens after the decision. Let's suppose um, that the Supreme Court really does come down um, on race preferential admissions. Um, what happens next? Uh, what do we do at that point? Do colleges and universities um, suddenly turn away and suddenly start applying admission standards that are race neutral? Um, that seems unlikely, unfortunately. Uh, there's going to be resistance. You can expect it. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I don't want people to get too pessimistic here. Um, you know, there's a tendency for people to think everybody involved in these admissions policies, they are just absolute ideologues, uh, and they will absolutely do what they want to do no matter what. You know, there's like three kinds of people involved in, in these, these cases. There are the ideologues, true. 
Um, but there are also what I would call fashionistas, that is people who just want to do what's fashionable, um, and time servers, people that just want to get their work done by 5 o'clock and get home for dinner uh, and not get into a lot of trouble. And I think actually, you know, over time, those individuals can be persuaded to do something that's kind of close to the right thing. It's just a question of making sure that the incentives um, are placed correctly. Uh, and of course, you know, further litigation is going to be part of that. But those of us who, who oppose race preferential uh, admissions should be taking a long and careful look um, at the legal structures that support race preferential admissions. Uh, the incentives to engage in these admissions have to be removed. And I think Congress has a role to play uh, in all of this. I recommend the following two actions by Congress. One, Congress should, should see to it um, that the jurisdiction of accrediting agencies um, to insist that schools um, have particular racial uh, approaches to admissions um, and to faculty hiring for that matter, that that authority be removed from accrediting agencies. That's one. The second one, um, Congress um, should terminate the unconstitutional minority-serving institutions programs. The most important of these is the Hispanic-serving institutions program, which pours millions upon millions of dollars um, into colleges and universities that have at least 25% Hispanic enrollment. And I'm sure you can all see where the incentives lie there. Any school that figures that they are anywhere in the vicinity of 25% knows that in order to get that funding, they need to push it till they get to 25%. So let me talk about the accreditors first. Um, one very important reason uh, that colleges and universities appear to march in lockstep on the issue of racial preferences uh, is that accreditors often demand that they do so. Um, since federal funding is contingent on accreditation, and that includes student loans, which are all important, um, when an accreditor um, issues a diversity diktat to an individual college and university, that diktat will be obeyed. Uh, they are, that is, accreditors are, the 800-pound gorilla uh, in the academic world. So for the past 30 years or so, uh, accreditors have been among the most eager enforcers um, of diversity demands. Uh, they are enthusiastic for diversity, uh, and this, in effect, has made them um, the, the enforcers of the, the diversity cartel, I would like to call it. In particular, they sometimes go after those schools where some of the faculty or administrators actually don't think very highly of race preferential admissions, or more commonly, they may be for racial, um, racial preferences and admissions, but they're for keeping the, the, the level of preference down pretty low. Um, and what happens is that the accreditors um, end up essentially giving the upper hand to the people on, on the faculty or in the administration who favor more radical preferences. Uh, and that has made a difference. Right now, my own institution, the University of San Diego School of Law, uh, is going through such a, a, a situation uh, where the accreditors have very firmly weighed in on the side of more racial preferences. Um, these accreditors will not just stop 
uh, because the Supreme Court declares that race preferences um, are illegal or unconstitutional. That is not going to happen. Um, when California uh, passed Prop 209 uh, back in 1996, outlawing racial preferences in admissions, among other things, uh, that was a campaign that I co-chaired, the ABA's accrediting arm immediately passed a rule that essentially said, regardless um, of what state law might require, um, all law schools must, by hook or by crook, they didn't use that language, but anyway, by hook or by crook, um, they must have a racially diverse class in order to be accredited. You know, they didn't say disobey the law. They weren't quite that indiscreet. Uh, but they were indiscreet enough to include in their amicus briefs to the Supreme Court in the Grutter and Gratz cases um, the claim that the only way to get a diverse class um, is, in fact, to discriminate on the basis of race. Um, so they very well knew that what they were doing was, in fact, requiring discrimination. Um, you just can't reconcile their briefs with their, their other statements unless you see that. Um, Congress should put a stop to this sort of thing. Congress should stop allowing this pressure uh, by simply passing a law um, that tells accreditors that this is outside their jurisdiction. Um, okay, so I won't have time to fully discuss the Hispanic Serving Institution Program, uh, but let me, let, me, let me hit a few high points here. Um, First, again, this shovels large numbers uh, of dollars uh, to schools that qualify by being able to say that at least 25% of their students um, are Hispanic. Uh, so that's, that's the level that you need in order to get the money. In theory, there's a rule that says they have to actually be needy, but that aspect of it can be waived and is waived. Um, so every year, each HSI uh, has to recertify. It has at least 25% of its students who are Hispanic. Um, if they slip below the threshold, uh, the money gets turned, you know, the money disappears. So the incentives are very, very clear. This is unconstitutional uh, and should therefore uh, be repealed. Uh, federal money is being doled out to colleges and universities on the basis of, of, of race or ethnicity. Uh, again, Use the basic rule, flip it. If it sounds like, if it sounds horrible, if you put it in terms of white students, it's because it's race discrimination. If the Congress had a rule that said schools that are at least 25% white uh, are available, have, have money available to them as a result, we all would rightly um, march on the Capitol to stop it. Um, it is absolutely inappropriate. Uh, and I think just about everybody sees that. Uh, so under long-standing constitutional doctrine, a racially discriminatory law has to be subjected to strict scrutiny. Um, so in order to, to, to withstand that strict scrutiny, um, as every first or second year law school student can tell you, there has to be a compelling governmental interest. It has to be narrowly tailored to serve that interest. Um, so it is hard to imagine how these Hispanic-serving institution rules will survive strict scrutiny. Um, number one, you can't say that it's a question of diversity, uh, which is what the Bakke case, or at least Justice, um, Justice Lewis Powell, was willing to go for back in 1978, uh, because a school can be fully 100% Hispanic, and it would still 
um, still qualify as a Hispanic-serving institution. Uh, you can't do it on the basis of past discrimination. Uh, there is no requirement that the institution that gets the money even um, have a, um, a history at all. They could have been established last Tuesday, uh, and they would still qualify for the program, nor is there a requirement that the students um, have suffered from, from, from race discrimination in the past. It can't be justified on the ground that it is giving money to a school because they have the extra job of teaching students for whom English is a second language because there is no such requirement um, in order to qualify as a Hispanic-serving institution. I think it's also worth pointing out, if I have a minute left here, and I hope I do, um, that the HSI program and the minority-serving institution programs generally are very different from the historically black colleges and universities program. Um, for one thing, the historically black colleges and universities program does not carry with it an incentive to discriminate on the basis of race. Um, it is purely an issue of did this school exist back in the day uh, pre-Brown um, when they were discriminated against in the allocation of resources. Um, colleges and universities, historically black colleges and universities uh, have no federal incentive to discriminate on the basis of race. And in fact, there are HBCUs that are majority white these days uh, in West Virginia, a state that has a very, very high uh, proportion of whites. Uh, I think the constitutional footing for HBCUs is also very different. Um, his, his, the, the minority serving institutions program, I think, is a clear case of unconstitutional um, and it should be eliminated. And now I bet I have used up my time, so I'm gonna, gonna stop there. All right, thank you so much, Gail. Uh, we're gonna give Eric the last word before we begin to mix it up. Um, I'll take Gail's comments in reverse order. I, uh, my close friend, Mike Dorf, and I blog with Mike pretty much once a week at Dorf on Law, wrote a piece a couple weeks ago, sometime in the last month, urging Congress to do exactly the opposite of what Gail suggests. Uh, Mike urged Congress to make it clear that Title uh, VI does not bar affirmative action. And I'll say to Gail what I uh, would have said to Mike if, if I talked to him about it, which is good luck getting Congress to do any of the things you want them to do. I think we can all agree that um, that's not going to happen. Um, and that's a sad thing. Um, so your interpretation of Title VI depends on the word discrimination. And I'll tell you what discrimination is. Uh, we, uh, there's one thing we know that it is. In 1950, eight years before I was born, and I hope I don't insult anybody by saying there are people in this room who were alive in 1950, uh, at every single state of the Confederacy, in every flagship institution, all of them, no exceptions, there were no blacks. 1950. No blacks, not a single one, in any of the flagship universities of the old Confederacy. That's discrimination. Um, I think there's a lot more work to be done to make the legal argument that discrimination in Title VI means what Gail and Mike are going to say that it means. Maybe we'll get into that. Um, two other quick comments. The Nixon administration certainly didn't think that because the Nixon administration put a lot of pressure on Ivy League schools to engage in affirmative action type programs. Uh, the Congress itself has passed laws, the one that was at, at issue, I believe, in um, uh, one of the first affirmative action cases, that clearly didn't read Title VI that way. Um, 
so I, I, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, but again, I don't really want to get too deep on the statutory question because that's also reversing 50 years of precedent. Um, I do think the court might go that direction. Two last comments. Uh, you know, maybe what happens after we know it's going to happen next June, in one way or another, all affirmative action will be gone as a legal matter. Gail asks, what's next? I have an answer for that, Gail. Um, I think maybe we should have the court say, please implement our ruling with all deliberate speed. <laughs> and I say that very seriously, because everybody in this room knows, I think, that 10 years after Brown, the 12 southern states, including Texas, were 98.2% all white in the elementary and secondary schools. All deliberate speed meant you know, no speed until the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. Um, so I, I, I do think maybe the court should give universities some time. And then finally, I want to say that um, I really have thought a lot about originalism over the last 15 years of my life, culminating in a book. This is an issue that I, um, I think is very important because, as I often say in these settings, I'm really the most originalist person sitting in this room because I am because I don't want the Supreme Court of the United States ever, ever invalidating a law unless there's clear and convincing evidence that that law violates either clear test or clear, clear text or clear history, which is why for 30 years of, 32 years of my academic life, despite being pro-choice, despite meeting my wife when I was giving a talk to Planned Parenthood, despite volunteering for Planned Parenthood, Roe and Casey are wrong. Roe and Casey were wrong for the exact same reasons that any decision as a matter of constitutional law overturning the type of affirmative action we have now, which leads to 8% blacks at Chapel Hill, um, is wrong. There's no text, there's no tradition, there's no history, um, and there's certainly no precedent suggesting that race cannot be one factor among many other in, yes, a holistic enterprise of admissions, I have been on my admissions committee, uh, I was on it for 15 years. It absolutely was a holistic uh, approach. And if we end up debating the pros and cons of affirmative action, I have some, I think, interesting stories to say about that, and I think we all will view that as, as, as kind of a hard discussion. But my understanding is that's not for judges. We're limited to, were, excuse me, they are limited, Freudian slip, um, they, I think I burned that bridge when I said the court wasn't a court. Um, <laughs> they say that text, tradition, history, and precedent are the only things that matter. Let's see if that's really true. Okay, thank you, Eric. Um, I'll get us started with some questions, but I do want to empower our audience to feel free to begin to ask questions as well. But I'll, I'm going to ask as just moderator's prerogative a few to get the conversation started. And I guess at the risk, Mike and Gail, of putting you on the spot, does either of you um, sort of feel like taking up the mantle that Eric has kind of put out there about originalism? I, I was at Stanford uh, earlier in the week giving a talk to the Federalist Society there, and a good faith skeptic in the audience said to me, um, look, I, I just don't know if I can take this originalism stuff seriously um, in light of the affirmative action arguments, um, you know, last week. Um, because, you know, what I heard in Dobbs and Bruin was originalism, 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 originalism. And now on your side, he says to me, um, I just don't hear much about that. Um, and I'm wondering if you'd be willing to sort of take up the challenge that Eric has put down about sort of originalism. What might an originalist... Um, 
uh, sort of position opposite Eric's B in this case? I don't know. I haven't done the work, and I'm just curious if you would be willing to respond. Yeah, I'd very much like to. <clears throat> I think Eric's proposition is because the word race is not in the Equal Protection Clause. It has nothing to do with race, which begs the question, who are they guaranteeing equal protection to in the wake of the Civil War and right after the 13th and 15th Amendments? Well, if you look, it's supposed to be the original meaning, and it's quite clear that what they were talking about, at least at its core, was racial discrimination. And it says, and therefore the only relevant part of the text, is it says, cannot deny to any person equal protection of the law. So the notion that there's some prohibition that applies to blacks and Latinos that's different from persons who are Asian and white is utterly contrary to the text. In addition to which, and I suppose Eric understands this, that means, of course, Brown's wrongly decided. All of the 14th Amendment cases suggesting that discriminating on the basis of race against a person is wrong because you don't see the word race in the 14th Amendment. I assume that he can't possibly mean that revolutionary change. So the only issue is not whether racial discrimination is covered by the 14th Amendment, but whether it applies to certain select groups that the uh, government has designated under its Nuremberg Code, or whether it applies, as the text says, to any person. Uh, in terms of tradition, I, it's almost bizarre. Yeah, we do have a tradition of slavery, and that was a bad thing, which led to a war, which led to the enactment of the 14th Amendment. So suggesting that it reflects the 14th Amendment is a bit ahistorical. If the court had done its job in Plessy v. Ferguson, we wouldn't have had a tradition of segregation. We would have had a, a tradition of the court striking down the massive resistance that uh, the South is involved in. In all events, tradition, I don't know, maybe, People can look at tradition when you're talking about these unenumerated rights, but I don't think anybody's ever thought if it's in the text. If the we have a we have a long tradition in the United States of suppressing speech, alien sedition acts, all of the nonsense around World War One. Does anybody point to that and say, well, you know, it does say free speech, but let's look at the tradition? And we've been fascists for a long time. <laughs> Uh, so go, go, go. Uh, the, um, the, the, my final point is, of course, this is entirely irrelevant, and I think Eric quite uh, understandably avoids the clearest possible language that no human being could come up with in the Title VI, which says no person on the ground of race, it's not just being subjected to discrimination, although I'll come back to that. It says will be excluded from participation or be denied the benefits of. Every Asian who doesn't get into Harvard who would be qualified if they were of a different race is being denied the benefits and excluded from participation on the ground of race. It's the but-for cause of their exclusion. So I don't have to get to the word discrimination, but there's no understanding of the word discrimination that doesn't mean treating somebody less favorably on the ground of race. And again, it says no person. So if you really want to argue that discrimination doesn't mean discrimination, then you have to argue that discrimination of the kind that Harvard perpetrates on Asians would be perfectly okay if they perpetuated it against blacks and Latinos, which I don't believe anybody would suggest. So no, it doesn't say invidious discrimination. It doesn't say discrimination against traditionally underrepresented groups. It says no person discrimination. So there is the most compelling 
textual arguments for why what they're doing is utterly about the law, which is my final point. The notion that everything I was saying was some kind of policy argument for the federal judiciary to impose on the legislative process has it precisely backward. My basic premise, the premise in American law for at least the past 80 years, is that discrimination in all of its forms, racial discrimination, is prohibited. Diversity is supposed to be an exception to that ironclad legal guarantee. And I was simply pointing out the intellectual vacuousness of this effort to justify discrimination against Asians that would be utterly intolerable if it was visited on blacks or Latinos. I'm not arguing we should ignore the law in favor of policy or supplement the law in favor of policy. I'm saying that these bizarro policy arguments uh, under the rhetorical uh, umbrella of diversity don't provide any rational basis from departing from the non-discrimination mandate that's been in the law since we can remember. So, 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 so Eric tugged on my sleeve and said I'd like to respond, so we're going to allow him to respond. So, um, Mike is a fantastic lawyer and knows that his, so I, I, I was at a Federal Society debate in Cincinnati recently um, when a lawyer named, uh, the topic was, is originalism our law? Um, thank you, Will and Steve. Um, and a lawyer in the room that, I was debating a lawyer, um, a great guy, um, and he was much better than me at, 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 at persuasion and, and, and style, but I would, had the better of the argument. So at the, <laughs> en so, so at the end, he said something very smart to the students. I, thought, I was glad he said it. He said, and, and Will Bold and Steve Sachs should listen to this. He said, um, what the law is is whatever I can say within ethical bounds to get my judge to rule for my client, which is exactly right, and we all know this. All the, lawyers, all the judges and lawyers in this room know that's true. Michael is, Mike is slipping back between living constitutionalism and originalism in a, in, in a way that I, as a scholar, I find interesting. It turns out your First Amendment analogy is really quite good, because as Judd Campbell, I think one of your own, but Judd is one of the brightest young scholars in the country at, uh, at Richmond, now visiting in Chicago this term. Judd has written several articles making the point that is not debatable, that everything we know about free speech doctrine other than the Pentagon Papers case is living <laughs> constitutionalism on steroids. You can't get there from original meaning. Can and, I just, can and, I just and, and, I'm trying to make yeah. a list here of Brown's no good. Pentagon. No, oh, Bra no, no. Brown, Brown. These are all judicial activism. Well, Brown. It, Brown is good, but only as a living constitutionalist decision. Michael. Oh. Michael. Oops. My friend right. Michael McConnell. Michael Carman has. Let's not get into that right now. Um, <laughs> and let me finish, please. Um, and I'll try to be brief. Um, the fact of the matter is, everything you know about the First Amendment is living constitutionalism, with the, exact, with the exception of the Pentagon Papers case. Because a historian, I'm, I'm not going to plug my podcast here, but <laughs> just, yes, just yesterday, two, two days ago, an historian on my podcast agreed with what Judd said, and, they have, and they're different politically, which is that the First Amendment was only about prior restraints. And we know this to be true. Everything else is the Supreme Court making stuff up. We like the stuff the Supreme Court made up about free speech, but it is stuff they made up. So, talking about this, the word discrimination. No, it's more complex than Michael would have you think. It's not how it works. Zero blacks at the University of Chapel Hill in 1950 is discrimination. Zero blacks at many state universities in 1963 is discrimination. 28% Asians, or 27%, don't hold me to the exact number, at Harvard 
under a system that takes into account geography, sports ability, and most importantly, legacy status, which of course is almost all white, is not discrimination just because Mike Carvin of 11 Supreme Court arguments and a great litigator says that's discrimination. Or Gail, who has been wrestling with these words for a long time, says it's discrimination. No, more is needed than that. Because I'm here to tell you that under the law as announced in Grutter, um, and before that, Bakke, um, to the extent there was law announced in Bakke, um, I've been involved in these holistic enterprises. And you are insulting me personally. I don't want to bring the personal in the room, but I will tell you, I do not believe I've ever discriminated against white people or any other race of people in my life. What I have tried to do, and now we're back in the realm of policy, not original meaning, but what I have tried to do is have a con law two class where we discuss Plessy and Brown and cases like that in downtown Atlanta at a taxpayer-funded law school two blocks in the heart of Atlanta Motel with a room that has different races in the room. That goal is not discrimination. And we don't just go by GPAs and LSATs. Harvard does not just go by SATs and GPAs. It is not a duality like that. And it takes more than reciting the word discrimination to make it so. We actually need arguments. Okay, so we've got people lining up at the mic, and uh, I, I, I don't want to um, sort of hijack this conversation. Gail, did you have something you wanted to say as well? So many things. Oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> so let's let Gail talk. And then we'll oh, man. Well, then, a lot of these are short, and I'm gonna, my memory's going bad already on some of them. Um, one, I wanted to agree with you on something, Eric, and that is getting things through Congress is hard. Uh, but fortunately, Title VI is already through Congress. It, the meaning is absolutely crystal clear. So I'm just not clear on why you keep saying you don't have text. Yeah, of course we have text. Title VI is easy. Uh, it applies here, um, and it's dispositive of the case. Uh, I should say a little bit about, about, um, about Justice Gorsuch. Um, as you'll recall, he was the one who authored the decision in Bostock, the transgender case, uh, and he applies what I actually think is too mechanical a view of what constitutes sex discrimination. In 1964, nobody in the world would have thought that the syllogism of a woman who wears dresses, makeup, and, and, and wears you know, jewelry uh, gets to keep her job, but a man who wants to wear dresses, makeup, um, and, and adopt feminine characteristics doesn't. And you know, Gorsuch says that's sex discrimination. That's really stretching it. That's a, that's a very, very mechanical um, view of what constitutes sex discrimination under Title VII. But for goodness sake, if that is sex discrimination, as Gorsuch seemed quite willing to say during the oral arguments in the Harvard case, um, then this is so massively easier than that. This is race discrimination. If somebody is treated differently based on race, it's race discrimination. And he wants that mechanical uh, application of Title VII and says, well, if that's, if that's clearly what Title VII means, uh, it's even more clear that that's what Title VI means. I mean, that's for goodness sake. This is just easy, easy stuff. Um, and so, unfortunately, on the Title VI issue, the plaintiffs didn't actually, um, didn't brief Title VI. Uh, they wanted a, a constitutional decision. Uh, I personally think that was probably a, a, a mistake, but it doesn't really matter because many of the amici um, talked about Title VI, so it is fully briefed. Um, so that's, that's my point on Title VI. 
um, on the accreditor side of it, the notion that it's hard to get things through Congress. Um, on my point of accreditors uh, being kept out of the decision and removing that kind of incentive, I believe that can be done through executive, age, uh, executive action as well. I think it follows from the Grutter and Gratz cases. They're talking about academic freedom. Academic freedom is not the freedom of the accreditors, it's the freedom of, of the individual institution. Um, and so uh, even under those cases, I don't believe that accreditors um, have the authority uh, to be telling schools what they should or should not be doing. Um, oh, on, on the 14th Amendment. Uh, the problem with the notion of, of race doesn't appear in, in, in the, the text is that nothing appears in the text, and that basically means there is no equal protection clause. Equal protection isn't out there you know, in any way that will help anyone. We all know that race was, was what was on the mind of, of, of individuals at the time, but even if you look at it in terms of you know, what, what it does is it throws it to the court, the court developed um, a, 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 um, a jurisprudence that revolves around strict scrutiny, um, and at this point, Point, they've got themselves in a situation where strict scrutiny is a joke, uh, and I don't think we want that world. Um, you know, going, you know, I think essentially reconciling strict scrutiny um, with, the, with the Harvard case requires a decision in favor of students for fair admissions. Um, and if you want to take a Dorkinian approach to it, you know, how is there any integrity to the notion of strict scrutiny uh, if it's strict scrutiny until it's something that, that, that five justices happen to think is cool? Um, so I think we can go, go down that road as well. Um, and I can't read my handwriting from my other sorts of situations here. Oh, the notion that Johnson vetoed the 1866 Act, there was no 14th Amendment at that point. Um, it, hadn't, it hadn't been ratified, um, and Congress went and re- um, re-promulgated the rule. They overrode his veto, but then after the 14th Amendment had been fully ratified, they re-promulgated. Uh, and I don't see how that, that could be reconciled with the notion that they didn't think they were outlawing um, race discrimination. Well, because the Freedmen's Bureau absolutely treated black educational institutions differently than white educational institutions. But, um, but as Mike Rappaport argues in his article, that is not dispositive here either. Well, but, um, and I, I'm not arguing that it's not a difficult question. I think it is. That's why I like Title VI. It's easy. Fair. Um, it's let, not but, a difficult question. Well, hold on. Let's talk about Mike Rappaport because I don't think he's here, but, but I know people here who know Mike or here. Mike admitted the original meaning question was very hard. He did. He admitted that. And in fact, in his article that is only one of two articles relied on by the most important brief on this question, even Mike admits in that article that he's not saying the 14th Amendment precludes affirmative action. It's not what he said in that article, Gail. It's not what he said. What he said was the people who claim it doesn't haven't made their case. The, here's the reality. Neither Justice Thomas nor Justice Scalia have ever, in all of their dissents and concurring opinions, ever examined truly examined, and Mike says this in his article, the, oh. origi the original meaning of the 14th Amendment. Listen, we can, we can reasonably disagree about a lot of things, but the originalism question here is at least hard. It's at least hard. Can I interject simply because you, you were talking earlier about who your friends were and how, Mike Rappaport's <laughs> one of my best friends, so I can say he's on my side. <laughs> But his, but his article, I but his article, not so much. I really don't like Rappaport. But that's a, <laughs> I do. <laughs> all, right, all right. So to the mic, I've only got one requirement: questions, not statements. Question. Um, okay. Uh, what do you think about this? Um, <laughs> so, um, 
Trumbull's response to Johnson on April 4th, 1866. So Johnson says, hey, this is discrimination in favor of the freedmen. Uh, Trumbull says, does that discriminate, and this is, by the way, from the end of my book on the 14th of Privileges or Immunities Clause, does that discriminate in favor of the colored person? Why, sir? The very object and effect of the section is to prevent discrimination. And language, it seems to me, could not more plainly express that object and effect. It may be said that it is for the benefit of the black man because he is now, in some instances, discriminated against by state laws, but that is the case with all remedial statutes. They are for the relief of the persons who need the relief, not only for the relief of those who have the right already, and when those needing the relief obtain it, they, they stand upon the precise footing of those who do not need the benefit of the law. So I guess my question for Eric is, isn't your explanation of the, over, the veto override a little bit quick, and for, uh, I guess especially uh, uh, Michael, don't you need a little bit more analysis of whether or not uh, this is remedial uh, uh, than, than you get other than just citing, citing Weigand? A couple quick responses to my friend Chris. First of all, I will not debate the history of the 14th Amendment with Chris because um, he's an expert on that uh, as much as anybody. Uh, Chris has not taken a public position on the constitutionality of affirmative action. I asked Chris this question a few weeks ago, um, and I think that's wise for Chris not to take a public position on it because Chris knows this history is more complicated than Michael and Gail were making it out to be. As to Chris's specific question, we, we can all take out statements both pre-1868 and post-1868 to support our respective views, but the laws that actually came out of that environment, many of which singled out blacks for special treatment, the actual laws that were passed. And then third and finally, I have written a lot, and I can't go into it here, about how institutional racism still exists in our police force, in our courts, in our government, in our top 500 companies, in our law schools, in our colleges and universities. So to someone who believes, and I may, you can say I'm wrong, I'm sure all of you think I'm wrong, but for someone who sincerely believes that institutional racism is still a plague on this society, then the remedial rationale still applies. Yeah, um, two points. We've obviously gone through this history at some length, but the allegedly problematical part was the Freedmen's Bureau. Well, they were giving it to people who were slaves. Now, obviously they were all black, but that's like saying giving reparations to Japanese who were interned in concentration camps is an ethnic preference. It's not. It's focusing on the fact that um, you're rewarding the victims, uh, and it's just a concomitant of the fact that all the victims happen to be one race. By the way, all this is inherently really not particularly on point because, as you all know, the 14th Amendment tells states what to do. It has no restrictions on the federal government. So this, and, and this was the argument made, made back during Brown. It couldn't have prohibited segregation because they were still segregating the D.C. schools. Well, Sumner understood, because he could read his, the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment doesn't constrain federal legislation in any way, shape, or form. So he introduced a separate bill uh, dealing with uh, segregation in the District of Columbia. But at the end of the day, it tells you nothing about what impositions they were putting on states, uh, because there's certainly an argument that they thought they weren't subject to constraints of the 14th Amendment. The story is much more complicated than that. There were some things in North Carolina and South Carolina that dealt with blacks, but it, but it turns out the people who voted for a law that gave black educational institutions more benefits than white institutions. There were people who voted for a law, for a law that did that. 
Um, it's hard to believe those same people would say that context-free colorblindness is mandated. And, and just one last thing about the text. Um, I think Chris Green would say that we shouldn't even be talking about the Equal Protection Clause. We should be talking about the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Well, that's, that's uh, uh, okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm not going to argue again with Chris about that either. Um, but I think the textual arguments get much harder if we move away from the Equal Protection Clause to the Privileges or Immunities Clause. Okay, next question. Fire away. Um, Is that in the rear? Which, which microphone? Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't even see. Where is the other one? Behind I, I the first. In my eyes. We oh. can't see you. I, I didn't even see you, see you back there. All right, so let's go to the back. Sorry about that. No, uh, sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm struck by the seeming agreement across the dais uh, that what we should anticipate following a ruling by the Supreme Court is massive resistance. There's a difference in valence, Professor Harriet doesn't approve of massive resistance by universities flouting the court. Uh, Professor Siegel seems to think that that would be, in this case, admirable. Uh, but I'm struck also by the fact that in his telling, the end of the massive resistance of the South following Brown was the passage of Title VI. And I wonder, how does he reconcile with, as Professor Harriet pointed out, Title VI being on the books, uh, an ongoing new round of massive resistance being consistent with federal law? I'm not sure I understand that, and I can't see you, I'm sorry, but um, I wish I could. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question. What I do know is the Congresses and executive branches that came after Title VI immediately in time, did not read Title VI the way Gale is reading Title VI. It doesn't mean Gale's wrong, doesn't mean that, but if Gale is gonna talk about the world of 1964 and the Bostock case, and by the way, 80% of you think Bostock was wrong, so I think Gale should be careful about putting, prompting up Bostock in this room. I'm convinced 80% of you think it's wrong. Um, but, in any, but in any event, um, listen, segregation is not over, for goodness sake. From 1946 to, the, to 1960, and Mike and I were talking about this uh, before lunch started, the federal government allocated like billions of dollars to build my hometown of Port Washington, New York, and suburbs all around New York and Boston and Chicago and Detroit um, and Los Angeles. Um, and all of that money, my parents bought, bought a house with that money, that wealth was handed down to me. All of that money went to white people, 98% to be exact went to white people. That's 1960, that's 1946 to 1960. The effects of that home mortgage plan, which built my hometown of Washington, New York, and many other similar towns uh, around the country, um, we're feeling those effects today. We all, many people in this room have, have wealth that was appreciated from the suburbs that were built with money that went only to whites. Let's talk about remedial for a second. How about this? How about that, like $100 billion? Let's give it to black mortgages and call it a day. How about that? Good? Okay, front mic. 
Wait, oh, oh, wait, 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 I just okay. want to plead guilty. Yeah. Yes, I think Bostock is wrong, but the thing is, it's an a fortiori thing. I mean, if something that is that wild um, is, is, is sex discrimination uh, under Title VII, something that is so far from what would have been considered sex discrimination at the time, something really easy, like what's going on at Harvard and UNC, that stuff is pretty easy. And if you look, you know, you, if you want evidence of what was, was going on um, in, um, in Congress in 1964, I would recommend um, Rehnquist's dissent um, in the Weber case, which pulls out uh, quite a few of the quotes which make it very clear um, what was meant by discrimination at the time Would and make it very clear um, that, that discrimination in favor of, 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 of underrepresented minorities was supposed to also be, be outlawed. And I don't think it's, it's not a close case. It's, 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 it's very clear. I'm gonna utter a sentence I've never uttered in my life. I wish Antonin Scalia were here. Um, so we're gonna take the legislative history over what actually happened on the ground post-1964. I think Justice Scalia would have a problem with that. All right, front mic. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, everyone, for a great panel. A uh, couple of questions on the history and uh, the text, history and tradition. Um, why is the omission of race and just the generic language, why does that not suggest race blindness or color blindness? rather than uh, suggesting color consciousness. Um, why, would, why is Harlan's dissent in Plessy suggesting colorblind constitution? Why was Harlan correct or incorrect? Um, it, the legislation that comes in the wake of the 14th Amendment that assuming it's color conscious, maybe it's remedial and based on slave status, not based on race. Why is that not section five of the 14th Amendment, not section one, and therefore wouldn't have any implications for state institutions discriminating on the basis of race. And to Michael McConnell's article, I think he said that the 14th Amendment was absolute equality with respect to civil rights. That was the rule that he said justified Brown. So why would that absolute equality with respect to civil rights not prohibit affirmative action, um, with, assuming that universities are public accommodations like educational facilities that are state funded? Why would that not ban discrimination with respect to equal access to public accommodations and applications? That's a lot of questions from a, another friend of mine, and it's good to see you. Um, I think you invited me to an event once, if my memory is correct, yeah. Um, so first of all, I think Michael McConnell's article on Brown, I love, M Michael and I are friends, he's been on my podcast, I like him. Um, I think that article is just incorrect um, because the people who lived at the time didn't believe in anything Michael says in that article, <clears throat> and they didn't act according to the principles that Michael said in that article. Now, again, if we were at the American Constitution Society and we were having a talk about living constitutionalism, um, and they probably dislike me more than you do at this, on this point, um, I would say that's all great, and maybe colorblindness is the way to go. Maybe it is. Um, I could be convinced, I'm not convinced yet, in a world that still has institutional racism, but I could be convinced and, and Justice Thomas's obsession with um, uh, uh, backlash and stigma are legitimate concerns, divorced from text, tradition, history, and policy, but they're legitimate, I mean, I mean and precedent, but they're legitimate concerns. The text of the 14th Amendment is very much a blank slate, as is the text of the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment. And I have written a lot, including in the Harvard Law Review, about the irrele irrele irrelevance of text to constitutional law as practiced in this country. There's no federal equal protection clause. There is no anti-commandeering clause. There is no state sovereign immunity clause from suits by states, by states on citizens against states. I could go on and on. 
The text really should be taken out of this conversation. Now, the people at the time, what they actually believed the text meant, if you read the historian's brief, and I don't have time to do it all, if you have time, if you have time to read it, please do. You're all intellectually curious here. Read what actual historians say. It might surprise you. Um, and I say that having talked to actual historians of different political persuasions about this issue. Finally, I don't hear Gail or you suggesting that Section 5 of the 14th Amendment allows Congress to enact the same kind of programs that Harvard allegedly enacts. <clears throat> so I, don't, I think you can't have it both ways. I mean, they were in a crisis situation dealing with a lot of different things. It was a, I think Chris would tell us, it's messy. Jonathan Genap would tell us, I'm sorry, not Jonathan Genap. Um, other scholars would tell us that there was a lot of confusion. They're trying to get this thing passed. It's very complicated. But one thing is clear. <clears throat> there were laws at the time those people voted for that treated blacks, not just newly freed slaves, treated blacks differently than whites. And that makes this a living constitutional issue, not an originalism issue. And, if and I think the question that Judge Newsom was asked is exactly right. Mike Ramsey at San Diego, who runs the originalism blog, another good friend of mine, Mike has said himself that judges so far have done a very, meaning Thomas and Scalia, have done a very poor job, no, no job, of fleshing out the original meaning. So if this decision comes down, I'm, I'm warning you all about this, if this decision comes down next June, with only a nod to original meaning, or, you know, and I think that's what's going to happen, by the way, because there's no persuasive argument. I'm going to say the same thing I said last term, which is Dobbs and Bruno are about history. History is not mentioned in the two religion cases last term. Not mentioned. Not mentioned in both religious cases, invalidating local decision making. I want to remind everybody, I'm here to tell you, judges should stand down unless you come at judges with clear and convincing evidence that the practice at issue violates clear text or undisputed history behind the text, judges should stand down. And you know who said that first? Raul Berger, Robert Bork, and even Ed Meese in the early 1980s. Any response over here? There's obviously very complicated historical issues, but the bottom line remains the same. The question is whether or not equal protection uh, clause prohibits disadvantaging a citizen on the basis of race by a state, right? And if you want to make that argument, you can make that argument. Uh, but I don't think that's the argument I'm hearing because I'm not hearing overturning all the laws that protect blacks against being disadvantaged on the basis of race. So now you have to make an argument that when it says any person, it means any minority person. So, and things you, can do, you cannot do with respect to minorities, you perfectly can do with respect to non-minorities. And if there's ever an atextual argument that anybody can identify, it's that the notion that the word any person means any person belonging to a government-preferred racial or ethnic group. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. I have two questions about that. We know the word no doesn't mean no. That's not debatable. It's not debatable. And we know something even more important. The court has pretty much hinted or suggested the First Amendment applies to the President of the United States, assuming the President does something. Um, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. We can get to incorporation, although I'm not sure that's even originally justified. We can get to incorporation in state legislatures. We cannot, via the text, get to governors and the President. Text doesn't matter. Huh. 
Now, there's certainly the nihilist approach to jurisprudence, where you're arguing that you're arguing that the conservatives are departing from the text, and at the end the of the day, have to hold. That's not no, fair. no, no, no. I got to finish. And at the end of the day, you're saying none of this text matters because we don't follow it in any circumstances. You've got to choose which boat you're riding in. Either they're departing from the text, or the text doesn't. Matter. No, I'm saying text doesn't help us here. That's all I'm saying. Text, not for either side. Doesn't help me. Doesn't help you. It should be taken out of the conversation. In fact, text should be taken out of all the conversations about constitutional litigation with one exception, the 11th Amendment. Oh, what did the court do with the text of the 11th Amendment? All righty. Um, <laughs> do we have a question at the back mic? I yeah. Can, okay, very well, uh, far So away. this question is inspired by uh, the, the book by Professor Bernstein on the history of ra racial classification in America. He's actually doing a book signing at 215. So I wondered if any of you had any thoughts on the, what's been called the arbitrariness of the racial categories that are used by universities. For example, the treatment of Asians as a monolith when clearly there's huge differences between, for example, a refugee from East Turkestan, a person from India, or a Chinese American, Japanese American. These are all very different, but they're treated as one or the classification of Iranians as white, or the huge variety in the Hispanic community, and how this might play into the Supreme Court's thinking, including any arguments on remediation when those categories are so different. I, I don't think it's the principal problem with all of these things, but it's certainly one of the consequences of engaging in this kind of group-based uh, think. You have to develop these Nuremberg codes and say who's in and who's out. And I used to have to do this in the 80s in uh, the federal government. And because Latinos were in, but Brazilians were out because they spoke Portuguese. The Asian category, as you point out, includes people from Afghanistan and India and uh, Japan and the notion that those groups are somehow indistinguishable either in terms of history or, or anything else doesn't make a lot of sense. The best aspect of actually treating individuals as individuals is you don't have to get into this bizarre classification game because it is legally, ethically, and morally irrelevant. So first of all, the phrase Nuremberg Codes, um, Abigail Fisher is not someone who was subject to something that we should be talking about in the context of Nuremberg codes, in my humble opinion. Um, I just, read David Just to be clear, I'll let you finish. Yeah. That comes from Justice Stevens' dissent in Baki. I understand. Um, Justice Stevens changed his mind on affirmative action, and you know it. Um, changed his mind 180 degrees. On a lot of, uh, on a lot of law. Um, okay. I, I read David. Uh, David and I are, are members of a very nerdy con law list. For those of you on the, in the room on that list, yeah, we're all nerds. Um, David makes really interesting and strong public policy arguments about how universities are um, engaging in trying to get their campuses more diverse. And I think, I, think I, I, I love David's first book on Lochner. I don't agree with its conclusions. It's a great book. I've said that publicly many times. I think David's new book is interesting. Um, I think, though, that we have to distinguish again between text, tradition, history, and, and precedent, and policy. Could in a world where racial preferences are allowed, are there better ways of doing it than the way Harvard and UNC are doing it? Well, there's definitely ways to do it better than UNC is doing it, because UNC is 8% black in a 21% black state. Um, I would like some of David's suggestions to be taken seriously 
by the people who believe in affirmative action. I think there are strong suggestions. I think there are strong critiques. But again, my understanding from Bruin and Dobbs is that's not fair game for this conversation. Um, what I can say here is that back in 1996 with the Proposition 209 campaign in California, uh, one of the arguments that was made very, very often at the time was California is a majority-minority state, or maybe back in those days it was about to become a majority-minority state, and that this, therefore it was very, very important uh, that racial preferences remain, and it seemed to me that the opposite argument was really a lot closer to the truth, uh, that the more diverse a country becomes, um, the less it can afford uh, to be making distinctions based on race because the, the complexity of that is going to drive you pretty crazy pretty quickly. Um, and it's not just that, like, among Asians, uh, there are different groups. The Hmong tends not to do great, great when it comes to getting into elite universities, uh, whereas Chinese Americans do tend to do pretty well uh, on that. Uh, it's also true within every uh, of these broad, um, supposedly racial characteristics. Um, you know, among Latinos, you get a huge difference between Cuban Americans and Guatemalans. Guatemalan Americans, uh, but also among whites, although sometimes it's easier to get statistics that are based on religion rather than uh, on ethnicity within the white group. Unitarians do extremely well uh, in getting into colleges and universities, Baptists and evangelicals of, of various sorts, not so much. Um, and a lot of that can be divided into ethnicity as well if we had the data, but we tend not to have the data. Uh, the notion that, that, that like whites are a monolithic group um, is just nonsense. It's just not true at all. Um, in fact, you know, politically, you have some of the worst disagreements between ethnic groups that are in the white category um, in terms of, of, of certain of them being very much on the Democratic side of the line, certain very much Republican on the line. Uh, but like, the complexity of this is unbelievable at this point, and I don't think it is maintainable. Um, and the more complex it becomes, the more it becomes political clout. Uh, and political clout should not be what is, 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 is driving this. Well, if we're going to, if we're, so let's, let's talk about the policy then, because that wasn't, that's a policy argument. Um, I, I don't, I, I say this with, um, as opposed to everything else I've said, less dogmatism than I've been. Um, so I work for a publicly funded law school in downtown Atlanta, um, and our history of race relations is different than the history of race relations in Los Angeles or Salt Lake City or um, Port Washington, New York, where I'm from. We have a different history. We have a different context. We have different constituencies. Um, and I agree with you, it's messy. I, I, I agree. But it, it turns out, though, that I, and I go back and forth on this, but I think there's a reasonable argument that the obligation of taxpayer-funded institutions in a society that was um, totally segregated in my lifetime, in my lifetime, totally segregated, pools, parks, schools, stadiums, Remember um, t uh, telephone booths? Segregated. Everything was segregated in my lifetime. Remediating that is a complex issue. I grant Gail that. I think we are a broad enough country and federalism, I'm actually a big believer in federalism, means that what is effective and appropriate in Atlanta, Georgia might not be effective and appropriate in Salt Lake City. And what's effective in Los Angeles may be very different than what's effective in Albany, New York. And what you have to answer is was Congress in Title VI or the, found, or the ratifiers of the 14th Amendment really, um, really doing a one-size-fits-all type thing or taking context into account? And I think it's fair to say most of those exclusively, almost exclusively white men, did understand the importance of context. 
Okay, let's get to the next question. Front mic. Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask you, in terms of moving forward after uh, UNC and Harvard cases, is there a way that we can have our cake and eat it too with disparate impact? And, and what I mean by that is once we get rid of affirmative action, these schools are going to come up with these policies like geography, uh, requiring interviews or requiring photos, something of the like, that we have to bring under disparate impact theory uh, because theoretically these schools won't be discriminating based on race. Um, and then there's another case, like for example, uh, the Texas Department of Housing case that said that disparate impact is okay because the Fair Housing Act has uh, disparate impact written within it as a, a cause of action that, that people can bring. So does that mean that we have to adjust the, the Fair Housing Act or is there a way, a way that uh, the affirmative action context and, and the fair housing context are different? Don't worry about it. Your Supreme Court is going to hold sometime in the next one to four years that disparate impact, that kind of disparate impact analysis is unconstitutional. So um, <laughs> that's, that's where, I mean, Justice Kennedy was already heading there. Um, so you're going to have to find ways to prove your stuff without using disparate impact, I think, sometime. Let, let me just say, I, I resent the idea that there, there's going to be bad faith um, undercutting of this decision. Do you really? No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How are you going to enforce that? Are you going to say that, that no one can mention their experiences of race in, in their college essays? I mean, I mean, frankly, some of the conservative justices were worried about this at the oral argument. What are you going to do? So we ask people to tell us if you're the first person in your family to go to college. We ask that for whites and blacks. And by the way, whites get a huge preference at my law school if they're the first person in their family to go to college. Um, but obviously, when describing that experience, race may or may not come into play. Are you going to say that's disparate? Are you going to find some argument that no colleges can't do that? Talk about micromanaging, judges micromanaging our, our, our university systems. Are you going to say that no mention of race can ever be done, ever? in the interviews that take place for, for these schools? How are you gonna enforce that? How are you gonna do that? There might even be free speech implications of that if it's a public school. Um, so I don't, I don't really know what you, what, I, I think disparate impact is gonna be the only available legal way to get at this stuff, but I suspect the court's gonna strike that down sometime in the near future. So um, it, it's, it, I, don't, I'm not, I, I, I will not use race in my admissions committee or hiring committee deliberations if I'm told I can't use race. Will I use other things that might be a proxy for race? Um, I don't know. Uh, that's going to be a complicated, difficult question. I am certainly not going to say, if I have anything to do with it, to the applicants to my law school sitting in downtown Atlanta, you're not allowed to mention your race anywhere in your application. That seems like a big stretch for the Supreme Court to require. Any response over here? I, I don't really know what we're... I, I argued Prop 209 in California, and I'm actually going to defer to Gail, because I've gotten very conflicting views of what happened in California uh, in the wake of 209. Um, the Harvard and them were claiming that uh, minority representation dramatically decreased, while the other side was saying it wasn't that big a deal, largely because they were looking at socioeconomic factors, not race. Uh, I don't know the right answer to that, and again, I think probably... Uh, Gale does, but the notion that all of these people weren't greatly devoted to racial diversity in the wake of Prop 209 is 
manifestly untrue. And I know they did do certain kind of gerrymandering, right? Once again, the bet noir of the diversity crowd is these damn Asians who keep succeeding. So, so what they did was rejigger, downplayed the importance of math scores and, and up the importance of English scores where Asians' uh, superiority was less marked. But I really don't know what the bottom line was. Well, I can tell you a little bit about that. Uh, immediately after Prop 209 went into effect, um, it is true that the number of, of African Americans and Latinos at UC Berkeley um, crashed. Um, because they made no effort at that point to do anything other than obey Prop 209. Uh, and that made the headlines everywhere. What they didn't tell you was that at other UC schools, um, like Riverside, like Santa Cruz, um, the numbers of minorities actually went up because what was happening is students who, who were getting into Berkeley on a preference um, were then going, they were still going to the University of California, it's a very prestigious uh, state university system, they were going to a different campus, a campus where their academic credentials put them in the ballpark with other students, and guess what happened? Um, the graduation rates for minority students went up. Uh, to be fair, I should point out that they were going up for, for all racial groups, but they went up for, for underrepresented minority students more. Um, and a, a, um, a researcher at Duke University, Peter Arcidiacono, um, went through the numbers, found that the graduation rates went up and that probably about 20% of that was due to Prop 209. Grade point averages for, for um, minority students, underrepresented minority students, also, boom, went up. Um, also, the number of STEM majors, boom, went up. Uh, went up by quite a lot. Um, and if you look at, like, for example, UC San Diego's data in particular, uh, prior to Prop 209 going into effect, there was a single African-American honor student in the entire school. One African-American student was, 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 had a GPA in the honors range. After Prop 209 went into effect, uh, they had basically the same proportion of honor students uh, as any other race. Actually, a little bit better than Asian-American students. That's in part because Asian-American students are more likely to be in STEM than any other racial group, and the STEM GPAs tend to be uh, a little harder to achieve. Uh, but basically what happened was that African-American students in California finally were in a position to where they could do, you know, they could compete, and they were competing, and they were doing splendidly. Now, over time, um, that's changed a bit. So the University of California has, has established a number of different requirements. They started to emphasize um, socioeconomic class in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and, and they started to look at that simply, um, you know, percentages, uh, students who'd done very well in high school GPA, but nevertheless hadn't necessarily done that well uh, on the SAT. And, you know, we started getting a, a situation where there was more mismatch than there otherwise would be. And that's not a good thing. That, that means that minority students aren't doing as well. But in 2020, it's very clear uh, that Prop 209 was still having a beneficial effect um, in terms of mismatch um, because the California legislature um, passed what became Proposition 16, which was designed to, to, um, to repeal Proposition 209 from the state constitution. Uh, they were funded dramatically better uh, than the no side was. Why did they bother with this? Why did they put so much effort into this? Uh, because they know very well that Prop 209 was still having a good effect. Um, basically what they were after was a situation where upper middle class African American and Latinos could get a preference as well. Uh, and the University of California had not yet come up with a way clever enough to bring in you know, fairly wealthy 
uh, African-American and Latino students. They were having to, to, to be satisfied with students who actually were a little lower on the socioeconomic scale. Um, and you know, they did what they could to reverse engineer this to have exactly the racial effect they'd like to have, but they weren't able to do that. Um, and much to everyone's surprise, except me, um, Proposition 16 failed. The people of California voted in favor of, of retaining Prop 209, uh, and I think that has continued to have a good effect uh, on underrepresented minor minorities going to California state universities. Not as much of an effect as I would like it to have. Um, it would be better if it were, if it were, you know, they didn't quite so much reverse engineer um, things to get the racial numbers that they want. But there are more underrepresented minorities going to the University of California now than there were pr prior to Prop 209. Uh, so we are not seeing um, a situation where, where there are no underrepresented minorities. And we are seeing a situation where the mismatch effect is somewhat less. Um, and that's a good thing, and I hope it continues, and I would like to see that go uh, across the country with a strong opinion from the Supreme Court. Uh, and note that what will happen is sometimes it's the very elite universities um, that are discriminating the most. They are vacuuming up um, the African-American and Latino students that, that would, would otherwise have gone to a school one rung down, two rungs down. Uh, what will happen um, is that a lot of these schools will start to get more minority students rather than fewer uh, because the, the schools that are higher than they are in the, in the so-called academic pecking order um, will, will, will probably get so much fewer. Um, it may mean that, that schools like Harvard and, and Yale will be somewhat less academically elite in the future as they adjust their admissions policies um, in order to, to have you know, a diversity that they wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, I'm not certain that that's going to be a bad thing, um, but you know, that's a story for another panel. Common ground. I think it'd be great if Harvard and Yale were less elite. Um, the fact that 10 states have shown they can end affirmative action through the democratic process would have been a very strong argument in this room in 1983. We don't need unelected life tenure judges in a case where text is at best ambiguous, history is confusing, tradition doesn't exist, and the precedent is against them. We don't need unelected life tenure judges to ram this down the American people's throats. The American people in 10 states have shown they know how to do it. Let's let democracy work. And if we had the popular initiative system in every state, I wouldn't be worrying at this point. Okay, so I think we've got time for one more. I'm gonna ask for a short question and short responses so I have you out of here in the next five minutes. Yes, sir. Yes. Hi, this is Will Trackman from Mountain States Legal Foundation out in Colorado. It sounds like many of the arguments about the racial inequality history relate to a remedial interest, not a diversity interest. So what are we to make of that and comments like Justice Kagan about having a population that looks like America or the reduction of groupthink when schools aren't offering preferences for evangelical Christians or Republican students who want to go to law school, why isn't there true diversity uh, in play at those preferences? There should be true diversity. I, I, I take your point. Um, and I think we can all do better at having true diversity. And, I, and, and my, most, my most important priority personally is intellectual diversity, not ethnic or racial diversity. Um, but having said that, again, is it your position you want unelected life tenure judges micromanaging the debatable policy preferences of thousands of state universities in a democracy where 10 states have shown us that if the people want a different kind of diversity or no diversity, they know how to implement that. And I still can't get past the notion 
that Harvard is 28% Asian, UNC is 8% black, and in 1950, 12 flagship universities of the Confederacy were 100% white. Okay, how about that? That was short. One more at the front. You've been very yeah. patient. Uh, well, I haven't been patient, but thank you very much. For, for um, you have feigned so, patience. Uh, so, Me too. Uh, on Gail and, Gail and Michael's point about the factual basis for the Harvard case, I was shocked when I, when I read the, uh, uh, the transcript. Uh, Justice Sotomayor talked about breaking the tie, and she said that Harvard has enough people with perfect scores of every background that exceeds their class limit. I looked up, you know, SATs are, are not, they don't release the numbers anymore, but they used to not too long ago. 350 people in the entire country of all races got perfect scores the last time we released. It's certainly not over 500 now. 70% of the Harvard class is, uh, uh, is, uh, takes the SAT. So even if they got every one of those students, they all applied, they still wouldn't come close. And if African Americans are only a small percentage of that, that's a, just a factually ridiculous okay, but comment. So, so what's the question? Well, I, I, I can say, well, Gail, do you, does that accord with what you were saying? I also want to say one other, one other small does thing. Does it have a question mark at the end? Um, I just want to make sure we're asking well, our panelists I, I, questions. I, I, is, is this the sort of thing that you've seen uh, out of this? What, why was the factual basis so badly handled? And I take it it's because in the briefing, they've got a lot of contrary information. Is that, is that so? I think that's probably so that the Supreme Court justices themselves are afraid to say anything uh, during oral argument that will, will sound wrong to them. As for the notion of, of, of Harvard has so many perfect scored uh, persons, um, they've got a heck of a PR department, don't they? I mean, it's, it's like it's always been laughable, the notion that everybody that goes to Harvard is, 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 has, has perfect scores and they're just making a, a one-point decision. In fact, the preferences that we're looking at are very large. And when we get, you know, when we get data, which isn't all that common, um, the, 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 the numbers are, are really quite, quite mind-boggling. You know, think back to the Gratz case back in 2003 when we know exactly what the University of Michigan was doing. It was adding 20 points to the uh, academic um, the academic index for students applying to the college there. 20 points um, was the equivalent, um, all other things being equal, a, a, an African-American student with straight Bs would be treated as if uh, that student had straight As, um, you know, everything else being equal in their record. That is huge. Um, if you want to look at it from another angle, uh, 20 points on the academic index was enough to, to mean that a, a, an African-American student, all other things being equal, it didn't matter what their SAT score would be, um, that, that they would top anybody um, because basically you wouldn't need to take the SAT to get those, you know, 20 points was the most you could get for a, for a perfect SAT score. So adding 20 points means that you could have the most imperfect SAT score possible and all other things being equal, um, you would be, be treated as if you had the perfect score. You know, these are not small preferences. Uh, and the notion that this is just like a, a small tilt, not so. Not so. Well, three judges wrote 350 pages or so saying that's not true. You can go read the record, um, but uh, they, they just did. I mean, three, three different, excuse me, four judges wrote hundreds of pages saying that, in fact, it didn't work, it worked that way. Um, so I would recommend you read the lower Undisputed court. Undisputed what 20 points means in the Gratz case. I'm not talking about Gratz. I'm talking about what Harvard's doing today. You're right about Gratz, and the court struck down the program in Gratz. Um, I, I, even I, worse in the Baki case. Even, even okay, even but worse. okay, yeah. but we're talking about Harvard. But those are the and only UNC. two cases where we have a clear record of. of, of 
What I know to be certain is that if we went to a gender-blind admissions policy, if we went to a gender-blind admissions policy at our nation's elite universities, they would be roughly 70 to 80% women. So that's right. Someone just said that's right. Are we really, are so we really going to... the concession we, is we should be discriminating against women now? No, the, yeah, no, 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 Michael, I'm sorry. Well, we, what Harvard is in fact doing is discriminating against women and discriminating for men under the criteria you both are laying down. That's in fact what's happening. And I've talked I'm to not really. Officials. I'm not really following. I'm for racial and gender blindness. And the fact that they engage in both racial and gender discrimination doesn't seem to me to I'm justify just saying, their racial discrimination. I'm just saying if they were sloppy. all worried about increasing diversity among particularly low-income people and minorities, they would end their legacy preferences. They would end their donor preferences. And they try and, they try and scrape by on their $50 billion endowment, but. Agree. Wait. Wait, I, I just wanna, if you've got better numbers than I do on the gender discrimination, I'd like to see them. As a member of the US Commission on Civil Rights, I asked the commission to look into the fact that women are indeed being discriminated against uh, in college admissions. Um, for some of it, it's actually weirdly legal um, that, that a private institution that is a liberal arts institution, Title IX does not cover um, their, their, their uh, admissions policy as to sex. It does as, as to race if they're federally funded. Um, but what we were getting in our numbers were very different from what you are saying, and that is that the worst discrimination against women is not at the elite schools, but rather at sort of mid-level liberal arts schools, where it is, is slight, but it's nevertheless there. Uh, and I think very much illegal at state institutions. And I tried to get people on the left to, to like come and, and you know, come be on my side. Uh, and no, it was like they love discrimination. Well, I, I, I want to be clear that I don't love discrimination. Um, I've been fighting it most of my adult life. What I do know, being on recruitment committees and hiring committees for 32 years, is that it's a very difficult, complex process. And it's more difficult and more complex and more nuanced than has been presented here today. It's holistic. OK, all right. Uh, Th thank you to thank you to our panelists. Thank you to our veterans. If you know a veteran, thank him or her today. Thank you very much.